0: You are now listening to the June 26th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, a sermon, and prayers after God's own heart. First, let's begin with Story of Kings.
1: heart and soul listeners this is brian winston with story of kings we have come to the last episode in story of kings we will go from amaziah the ninth king to zedekiah the 20th king they are all kings of the southern kingdom of judah after joash died in the hands of his servants joash's son amaziah succeeded him as the ninth king of judah once he was in power Amaziah began searching and taking out those servants responsible for the killing of his father, but he stopped from killing their children in obedience of the law that prevented killing children because of their father's sins and killing fathers for their children's sins. Later, he hired mercenary soldiers from Israel with a large sum of money to go to war against Edom. However, after receiving a warning from a prophet, that he should not go to war fighting alongside the Israelites who worshipped idols, Amaziah changed his course of action and sent the mercenary soldiers back to Israel. For his obedience, he was victorious in war. He trusted God and acted righteously. Nevertheless, after winning the war, Amaziah acted foolishly by bringing in the gods of Edom with him to worship them. He succumbed to the temptation of worshiping foreign gods. God warned Amaziah through the prophet, but his heart was hardened, and he did not listen to God's word. Eventually, Amaziah died at the hands of the conspirators. That was 29 years after he became king. After Amaziah died, his son Uzziah, who was also called Azariah, became the tenth king of Judah. God was with Uzziah as his reign began. God helped him to become strong and prosperous. Unfortunately, Uzziah became proud and then sinned before God. Ignoring the laws of God, he attempted to burn incense himself in the house of God, an act reserved only for the priests. He did not heed the warnings of the priests. He even became angry at them. Eventually, God struck Uzziah with leprosy. Consequently, with a disease like leprosy, he was considered unclean and was cut off from entering the house of God. He was also excluded from performing kingly duties. Uzziah lived in isolation from then on in a separate house until his death. After Uzziah died, his son Jotham became the 11th king of Judah. Jotham actually stepped in to perform the king's duties on behalf of his father when his father Uzziah was struck with leprosy. The Bible tells us that he became strong and prosperous because he walked the righteous paths before the Lord. But even Jotham was not perfect. Jotham failed to remove the high places just as his ancestors, and allowed his people to give sacrifices on those high places. Also, he did not stop his son Ahaz from worshipping foreign gods, for that God inflicted punishment. God used Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, and struck Judah. After Jotham died, Ahaz, a worshipper of foreign gods, became the twelfth king of Judah. He not only worshipped idols himself, but he made the people to worship idols as well. He went so far as to committing an abominable sin of sacrificing his own children to foreign gods. He destroyed all the utensils in the house of God, closed the gates to the house of the Lord, and build altars for foreign gods in every corner of Jerusalem. God punished Ahaz by raising Aram and Israel. Ahaz did not turn back to God, even to the end. He died being recorded as the most wicked king among all the kings of Judah. After Ahaz died, his son Hezekiah succeeded him as king. Though he was the son of the most wicked king, unlike his father, Hezekiah turned to God in obedience. He began with consecrating the house of the Lord as soon as he became king. He repaired the house of God and restored the temple worship. He also reinstituted the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and ordered people to celebrate them. There was spiritual revival in Judah. People repented, celebrated the Passover, They were so passionate about celebrating, they extended the length of the celebration time by twofold. They remembered God's deliverance. When they went back to their homes, they removed all idols and the high places. Hezekiah made it possible for the priests and the Levites to give sacrifices according to the laws of the Lord. While he was living faithfully by the word of God, Hezekiah suddenly became mortally ill with boils on his body. Then Hezekiah humbly prayed to God. As some of the listeners may recall, God listened to his prayers and extended his life 15 more years. God also promised him that he would deliver Judah from Assyria. Unfortunately, Hezekiah became proud afterwards. His pride surfaced at a critical moment. When delegates from Babylon came, he proudly showed off all the wealth that God had allowed him. He boasted what he had accomplished. That was a bad idea because the delegates saw what they could potentially take from him. For that foolishness, God told Hezekiah that Judah would fall by Babylon and would become captives in Babylon. Some time passed after that, and Assyria attacked Judah. When his life was in danger, he should have sought God, but instead Hezekiah tried to keep Judah safe by giving tribute to Assyria. But things did not go the way he planned. Assyria attacked Judah regardless, mocking God. Then Hezekiah came to his senses and fell before God and prayed to him. He remembered the promise God made to him about delivering Judah from Assyria. That was when he was mortally ill and when God extended his life. The righteous God kept his promise. He delivered Judah from the hand of Assyria. Hezekiah eventually died. His son Manasseh became the 14th king of Judah. The Bible tells us that Manasseh and Judah did evil things which was more wicked than all the nations the Lord had destroyed before the descendants of Israel. God became furious with the evil things they did. But God also wanted Manasseh and Judah to turn back to him. So God permitted Manasseh to become a captive of Babylon. In his tribulation, Manasseh turned back to God. The loving God then forgave Manasseh and restored him into his throne. After Manasseh died, his son Amon became king and reigned over Judah for two years. Sadly, Amon brought back the idol worshiping and giving sacrifices to them. Amon did evil things before God and eventually was killed by his servants who conspired against him. After Amon died, his son Josiah became king at the age of eight. When he turned 16, he sought God in earnestness and he began reforming Judah when he became 20 years old. He removed the high places and idols from all the land of Judah and repaired the house of God. While repairing the house of God, Josiah happened to find something precious. He found the book of the law of the Lord. By reading it, he came to understand that he and the people of Judah had been sinning against God. When Josiah heard about God's wrath on Judah, From the prophetess Huldah, he immediately called in all the people of Judah to Jerusalem and made a covenant before God, and once again he removed all the detestable things from the land. Then he celebrated the Passover according to the law. But unfortunately, the story of Josiah abruptly ends there, at least by what is recorded in the Bible. The Bible only records how Josiah confronted the king of Egypt, relying on his own thoughts, and died in the war. After Josiah died, his fourth son Jehoahaz became the seventh king of Judah, but he was deposed by Necho king of Egypt only after three months. Jehoahaz lived as a captive in Egypt until his death. When Necho king of Egypt took Jehoahaz as a captive He made Eliakim, Jehoahaz's older brother, and Josiah's second son, the king in Jehoahaz's place. Necho changed his name to Jehoiakim, and he had him pledge his loyalty to Egypt. At the time, Babylon and Egypt were at a constant state of war, and Jehoiakim fell victim to that conflict. Babylon became victorious over Egypt, and Jehoiakim was then killed by the Babylonians. After Jehoiakim died, his son Jehoiakim became the 19th king of Judah. The Bible records that he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father had done. Jehoiakim surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, three months after he became king and was taken captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar put Jehoiakim's uncle and Josiah's third son, Mattaniah as king and changed his name to Zedekiah. The Bible tells us that Zedekiah also did evil in the sight of the Lord. The king of Babylon killed Zedekiah's son in front of him and killed off all high officials of Judah. He gouged out Zedekiah's eyes and imprisoned him. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. Now both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah were no more. Israel fell to Assyria in 727 B.C., and Judah fell to Babylon in 586 B.C., about 140 years later than the fall of Israel. So God's chosen people of Israel disappeared from the land of Judah, that is, until God allowed them to return after 70 years of life as captives. We have now come to the end of the story of kings. As we reflect on what we have heard, we realize that all kings, even the faithful ones, often succumb to their human frailties. No king was truly faithful to God. Some seemed to follow God faithfully, but they then became proud when they became prosperous. Some seemed to repent but they then turned to other foreign gods, the history seemed to repeat itself. Human beings by themselves would always fail. All these observations make us realize that the only way salvation became possible was with the birth of Christ Jesus. We come to understand in a deep and profound way that the only way for sinners to be reconciled with God is through Jesus Christ. When we search within our own soul, we may find tendencies of these kings that have gone before us in Judah and Israel. We pray we do not repeat the same sins. With help from Christ, we find ways to break the chain of sin. Beyond those kingdoms that human kings reigned over, we pray that we all can enter into the heavenly kingdom that our true king Jesus reigns over. We look forward to the day Christ himself will reign over all the nations. Thank you for being with us throughout this program. We now conclude our program on the story of Kings. Goodbye and God bless you.
2: Say hey.
0: Up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Keys to a Godly Reputation, Part 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. When I bought my first house it was in
3: Washington State and uh, it was a small home up there. We were my wife and I were serving up there. I turned into my dad the minute I signed the papers. I ran around our new house turning off all the lights and turning down the thermostat constantly. It's funny, but when you're young, what do you promise yourself you'll never do? I'll never be like my parents. I will never be like my parents because they're nerds, right? Or they're just not cool enough or they don't know enough. They don't know anything. And so we promise ourselves we will never be like our parents. But before you know it, what happens? The transformation is underway. So be honest. How many of you have or are currently turning into your parents in one way or another? Be honest. It's a lot of us, right? You look in the mirror one day and you're like, I'm my dad. I turned into my dad. I dress like him. I talk like him. I'm even starting to look like him or your mom in that case. But then something amazing happens. Something amazing happens. And you know what it is? Once you've turned into your parents, you realize your parents were pretty smart people after all. Here's the point you do. You turn into your parents and you realize your parents weren't so bad after all. And actually, you begin to take pride in who they are and who you have now become. You've become like them. Now, here's the reason I tell you this. The reason I tell you this, because in today's passage, Paul is continuing to defend his reputation. If Let me just go back to last week real quick. Paul had to defend his reputation to the church at Thessalonica because after he left, false teachers came in and began to accuse him of being a false teacher. The false teachers were saying he's the false teacher and Paul's having to defend his reputation. And unlike the false teachers of Paul's day who simply went into a town and took advantage of people, took their money and put heavy yokes on them, Paul goes, I didn't do that. When I came to Thessalonica, I was like a parent to you. I was like a parent to you. And that means you can trust me because I didn't take advantage of you. And that has a bearing on each of us here today. And here's why. Because in our passage today, Paul makes the case why we should do the one thing we thought we would never do, why we're crazy not to want to act like our parents. Now, let me add something to that. Why you're crazy not to want to act like your parents in the faith. Because this is a sensitive issue, and here's why. Not all of us had good parents. Not all of us had Christian parents. Not all of us had parents, period. And so what I mean when I say you're crazy not to want to act like your parents, I mean in the Lord. Whoever those people that you know that are further along than you and poured themselves into you, why you're crazy not to want to be like them. That might have been your actual parents, but it might have been somebody else, a father or mother in the Lord. And we all have those people that we look up to. Paul's reason for this is quite simple. The more you become like your parents in the faith, the more of a spiritual impact you will make in this generation. So church, it is on that note, it is my honor to take us to the word of God today. We'll be in First Thessalonians chapter 2, picking up in verse 7. We went through verse 6 last week. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9 For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Amen. So in our passage, the Apostle Paul outlines for us the most unlikely of strategies for impacting people for Christ, and that is to take a page out of your mom and dad's playbook. Your mom and dad in the faith, whoever that person is or those people are, take a page out of their playbook. That Paul took a parental role is seen throughout the scriptures. Let me give you one example. Here's one. It's in First Timothy. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So with this in mind, let's begin to unpack our passage today. Paul starts like this. He says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul uses a very real-life scenario, a nursing mother, to drive home a super important spiritual point. And here it is. Never underestimate the significance of being gentle when seeking to impact people for Christ. That's it. Never underestimate the power of being gentle when seeking to impact people for Christ. While a nursing mother can make people feel uncomfortable, Paul is brilliant for using such imagery because there is there anything more gentle than a mother with her child? I think it goes without saying, we live in a world that's just the opposite. Wouldn't you agree? Man, we live in a mean, mean world. And it was mean long before the internet. I can prove it to you. You ever heard of Cain and Abel? Yeah. People have been mean and brutal with each other from the dawn of time. But with the advent of the internet, It's only gotten worse. I mean, even the most timid person can become a terror on the internet because of the anonymity it provides. It's like there's snipers everywhere on the internet willing to say anything and take anyone out and to say even the most mean-spirited things that can be said are being said. Do you know the last thing this world needs is for the church to join in that course. That's the last thing this world needs. We, in a world where people are looking to Washington for hope or Hollywood for hope, all they're seeing in those places is mean-spiritedness. The last thing then they should do is look at the church and find us to be joining in the chorus of that. The last thing the world needs is this, callous Christians, mean-spirited Christians. Because when we are like that, we are no different from the world that we are so desperately trying to reach. And yet, I bet to a T, I bet to a T, every one of you knows someone who is a Christian who calls themselves a Christian who is calloused and mean-spirited in the way that they treat other people. Sometimes callous Christians will say, well, that's just who I am. You know, you can't teach an old dog new trick. But the fact of the matter is that's no excuse. Does not our God specialize in teaching old dogs new tricks? I mean, that's what our God specializes in. Does not our God specialize in making his saints more like his son? Of course he does. That's why you and I as believers, we never have a good excuse for not being gentle. Gentle like a mother nursing her child. Folks, we have been called out of the world. We've been called out of the world. That's what it means to be the church. Ecclesia means to be called out. We are the ones that are called out of the world. Which means this world that is terribly mean-spirited, we've been called out of that. We've been called out of a mean-spirited, disgruntled, angry lifestyle. We've been called to be gentle like a nursing mother. That's crazy. When you think about the calling of a Christian, do you ever, did you ever hear it that way? You have been called to be gentle like a mother with those under your care. <laughs> you know when All that stings? Number one, I'm a man and gentleness doesn't always come easy to me. And number two is I drive a car. And I'm anything but gentle when I get behind the wheel. I am anything but gentle when I get behind the wheel. By the way, have you ever noticed, it's interesting to me, the fruits of the spirit, Galatians 5.22, right? But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Did you ever notice that many of them have a motherly quality? Look at this. You could make the case that all of them have a motherly quality, but let me just highlight four of them. But the fruit of the spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I think most of you would agree with me. The world could use more loving, patient, kind, gentle people right now. Don't you think? And heaven forbid that the world, I feel so bad for the world. The world is looking to Washington for hope. They're looking for, to Washington to act mature and (laughs) adult-like. Guess where, well, guess what you've been called to do? Be mature in adult life. Be like a mother. Be like your spiritual father. Grow up in the Lord and be mature in the Lord. The world for looking for maturity should be looking to the church. And we should expect them to. The most reasonable, mature people are here. Not Washington. And certainly not in Hollywood. I have no doubt the church has an opportunity to shine right now, literally, that right now at this very time, the church has an opportunity to shine if for no other reason that we are exceptionally gentle and kind in an exceptionally brutal world. I mean, I could stop the sermon right here on that point and that's good enough for the day. It really is, but I'm not. <laughs> Notice also that Paul doesn't just want to share the gospel with them. He shared his life with them, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. That's significant. And here's why. Good mothers, draw close to their children, not push them away. Not only do good mothers draw close to their children, good mothers draw their children to them, close to them. Good mothers share their lives with their children, which is exactly what the apostle Paul does. He comes into Thessalonica, and unlike the false teachers who would seek to take advantage of people, Paul doesn't take advantage of them. On the contrary, he shares his life with them. He lets them get close He lets them get close. And that's significant. You want to know why? Because as Christians, we are called to walk in faith and not fear. Fear says, I'm going to keep you at a distance so that I'm not hurt, so that you can't get too close, so that you can't see my wounds or my scars or my warts. But faith says, I'm willing to let you get close. Come in and see who I am. Get a close-up look and walk with me and talk with me because I'm willing to share my life with you. That's faith. Folks, in a day and age where everybody is calloused and mean-spirited, in a day and age where there's snipers on the internet and people are keeping each other seriously at a distance for no other reason than it's easier to shoot people at a distance than it is up close, in a world where everybody is distant, we as Christians say, come close. I, am, I read something once that said, if you graduate from high school with even one good friend, you're in, the, you're in a rare minority. The reason I tell you that is most people don't have friends. They just don't. They have acquaintances, but most people don't have friends. And even fewer have Christian friends. What an opportunity for us as Christians in this generation to come alongside people and not only befriend them, but befriend them in the Lord and say, come and draw close. Walk with me. Let me care for you like a mother. Come close. You're, gonna, you're not going everything you're going to see is not going to be pretty, but I'm walking in faith and not fear, and I'm gonna trust that as I let you get close, good things are gonna happen. By the way, 99.999% of the time, not even nine times out of 10, that's only 90%, 99 times out of 100, when you let somebody get close, what happens? You only endear yourself to them. You let people get close and they see your warts, which you think they're gonna run from, and what do they do? They go, I've got the same warts, <laughs> I've got the same scars. I've got the same battle wounds. Thank you. In a world where I have no friends, not only are you my friend, but you're my Christian friend. And you've done the one thing that no one else has done. You shared your life with me. (sighs) Folks, that's what we've been called to. Now I know what you're going to say. Letting people get close is messy and inconvenient. You're darn right. There is nothing convenient or clean or any. uh, It's hard to let people get close. But folks, that's what we are called to do. Your goal in this lifetime is not to make money, not to acquire stuff, not to he who dies with the most toys wins. Your job, my job in this generation is to make disciples. This is what Paul was doing in a world where people's love for one another is growing increasingly cold. Christians have a wonderful opportunity to shine if for no other reason than we let people get to know us and get close. It's amazing when new people come to this church and they get to know us here at Arizona Community Church, they're always amazed. I seriously, I get comment card after comment card about how friendly this church is. I always say we're the friendliest church that I know of because people are always amazed and it's because they come here and they find real people, authentic people. As believers, we've been called to live by faith and that lets, faith lets the walls come down and lets people get close at times. But here, Paul doesn't just stop there. He goes on to say this. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed the gospel to you. Listen, no parent, no parent ever wants to be a burden to their children. Rather, it's just the opposite. Good parents want to give to their children and bless their children and support their children. Because of this, Paul had worked hard never to be a burden to those he ministered to. The false teachers would come into a town and take advantage of people. Paul said, that's not what I did. I came in and did just the opposite. Instead of taking from you, I gave. I was a source of blessing in your life. Paul wanted to be the type of spiritual leader who was a source of blessing, constant blessing for those under his care, But in order to do that, guys, listen to me. This is very important. This is the gospel, what I'm about to say. In order to do that, we've got to get our eyes off of ourselves. We live in a culture where everybody is fighting for their rights. Everybody is demanding that they get their way. Everybody is focused on what they can get from themselves. We have not been called to that, have we? We have been called to give our lives away. We have been called to be a source of blessing, not a burden. We don't walk into people's lives and say, make this about me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this, no greater love than this, than when one man lays his life down for another. Paul says, I'm not like the false teachers. I'm not like the people of this world. I came into your life. I was gentle like a mother. I cared for you. and I let you get close. And I was a source of constant blessing from you. I wanted nothing from you other than to bless you. Folks, that's the life of the Christian. That's what we've been called to. And guess what? There's nothing convenient about that. Not a thing. It's easy to get stuck in adolescence. That's where we as Christians, somebody has nurtured us and brought us along and cared for us, but we remain there. We remain in adolescence. Listen to me. If you look to Washington, you are going to see nothing but adolescence on both sides of the aisle. And I don't care who that offends. Are you with me? Yeah, you look to Washington, nothing but adolescent behavior. If you look to Hollywood, even more adolescent behavior. When people look to the church, they should see mature godly men and women who have matured in their faith to the point where they are giving their lives away in service to others. And by the way, I'm going to tell you, that's what we've been called to. No greater love than this than when one man lay his life down for other. You can only hope that God finds you worthy enough to where you could lay that, be a sacrifice your life for him. That you could enter heaven as a martyr. That would be the greatest calling upon my life, Lord, that you would count me worthy enough at some point to lay down my life in service for you. I'd love to enter heaven with that on my resume, my spiritual resume, and I hope you would too. And if you're going, wow, that's pretty intense, yes, that's maturity. That's how we who are mature in the Lord think. Think. We don't think anything like the world. The world is after itself and seeking to please itself and satisfy itself. We as Christians have been called out of that to something radically different. Don't ever lose sight of that. And if those in your life are running towards the world, resist it with all your might. Resist it with everything that you have. Don't remain in adolescence. Grow up and be like mom and dad. Do you want to know, by the way, when you've grown up in the Lord and you have matured to the point where you're a blessing to others and and you're giving and not taking, it's simply this. Just ask yourself, am I a giver or a taker? Am I a giver and a taker? Because adolescents are takers. Children are takers. They have to be because they're young. But the point that Paul is making here is let's grow up in the Lord to the point that we have grown out of our adolescence into maturity where we are a source of constant blessing to other people. We can ask ourselves, am I the one that always needs to be encouraged? Am I the one that always needs to be prayed for and ministered to? Or am I like a good parent? Have I matured to the point where my eyes are off myself and I'm seeking just to bless others? Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when all of us need to sit at the feet of someone else and be ministered to. I do. I've been a Christian a long time. I'm a pastor. There are times in which I just need to sit at someone else's feet and let them pour into me. We all need that. But I don't want to remain there. I want to get filled and I want to give. I want to get filled and I want to give. But Paul doesn't just want to be a source of blessing. He also wants to be a godly example. He says this in our passage, you are our witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you who believe. Not only was Paul a source of blessing, he was also a source. He was a good role model. He was a good role model. And I think we'd all agree that Every good parent wants to be a role model and every good Christian parent, everybody who matures in the Lord wants to be more than just a role model. We want to be a godly role model, which is exactly what Paul was to the Thessalonians. He was holy, righteous, and blameless in every way before them. And that's significant because you want to know why? He was sharing his life with them. They didn't just hear about his holiness and his righteousness and his blamelessness. They saw it with their own eyes. Why? Because he shared their life with him. He shared their life with them. They saw him behind closed doors. They talked with him late into the night. They fellowship with him. And they could see that he was a man of pure motives, of holy thoughts and righteous and blameless in his conduct. now, All of us who are parents have fallen into a trap, and we've fallen into the same trap, and I'm going to prove to you that you've fallen into the trap, and you know what that trap is. You ready? Finish the statement. Do as, say, and not as I do. I only had to say do as, and you got the rest, didn't you? Yeah, there's a trap. You don't even have to be a parent to fall into that trap, but as parents, we fall into that trap often. We say, do as I say, not as I do. And we do this as a means to excuse our less than exemplary behavior. But folks, that mentality won't work. If it is our goal to make an eternal impact in this generation, we must mature out of adolescence and set the example. Listen, people are looking to Washington. They are not going to see holiness, righteousness, and blameless character there. They're not going to see it in Hollywood either. Their only hope is that they look to the church and see People that have matured in the Lord and are walking with the Lord in incredible ways. Non-believers and young believers who are under our care need to see that we don't just preach the gospel, that we live it. I once heard that the pride in your parents exists long after they die. And I learned about that before both my parents died, but then both my parents died, and I realized that's true. To this day I still find pride in my parents. I was profoundly impacted by them then, and I am to this very day. And that's the whole point of this sermon, folks. If you want to make an eternal impact with your life before it's over, then do as Paul did. Start acting like mom and dad. Start doing the one thing that you thought you would never do. Emulate those that are further ahead of you in the faith and do whatever it is to model their behavior. You want to become mom. You want to become dad. And speaking of dads, Final thing that Paul says in our passage is this, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Whereas mothers are gentle and nurturing, fathers are to be courageous and encouraging. Amen? Listen, mothers are the one who make the nest and nurture us in the nest and fathers are the ones that kick us out. (laughs) I kid you not. I'm the youngest of four. On our 18th birthday, we all got the same present. You know what it was? And I'm not even kidding. Luggage. (laughs) We got luggage on our 18th birthday. I got Samsonite. It was blue luggage. When I married you, I still had a lot of it. But yeah, we got luggage on our 18th birthday. Fathers are the ones who push us out of the nest. And prompt us and encourage us to spread our wings. And that is exactly what Paul does. How? By doing this. You are to walk in a manner worthy of God. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Mothers nurture us in the Lord. Fathers inspire and encourage us in the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy. Come on son. Come on daughter. Step up your game. You can do it. It's time to leave adolescence and mature. Walk in a manner worthy to which you have been called. That's what we are to do. That's what we're to do. I don't know that the church is doing that enough. I don't know that Christians are doing that enough. Paul does this in other places. He does it with the church at Ephesus. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. (laughs) Paul's setting the example as a father. He's in prison. This is a father. He's a studly spiritual father and he's in prison. And he's like, hey, let me urge you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And if you're lucky enough, like me, you might end up in prison. But you want to know what's fascinating about this verse right here? Here's what's fascinating about this verse. Verse 1, he urges them like a father, but in verse 2, he urges them to act like a mother. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. In just these two verses, he exhorts like a father to live like a mother. Incredible. Incredible. A little bit later, he acts fatherly again when he says this. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So he does it in the negative this way. Instead of saying, walk in the manner of the worthy, which you have been called, he does the negative. He says, stop acting like the world. That's what good fathers do. Good fathers say hard things at times and need to say hard things at times. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman in here. If you're a Christian, there are times in which you are going to have to say hard things to those that God has put under your care. It is your spiritual responsibility to do that. You can't just nurture them all the time. Fathers have to have the courage to say bold things. That's exactly what Paul does. And for those of you that might be new to this church, you'll know what kind of makes my heart beat. But I am worried about the church in America. And particularly because the church has stopped saying hard things. I mean, not only are we not saying hard things anymore, we're doing just the opposite. We're like running to the world and trying to buddy up with the world and appeal to the world on every level. The world says something crazy. They can say, yes, there's a hundred different um, genders and we're like, okay, great. If that'll make us, if, you, if that'll make you like us, then we agree. No, that's not what parents do. When people are acting unreasonable, parents step in and going, you're being unreasonable. It's time for the church to start being fatherly. Would you not agree? It's time for the church to step up and say some hard things. We show them. We show that the world, oftentimes a gentle, we talk about God's love and mercy, and we should. He is. He's loving and he's merciful, but he's holy and righteous, and we better testify to that. Because if we don't, we see what's happening in our society. We see what's happening to America. But listen to me very carefully. It's not just the church or pastors that we need to, to put under the microscope. We need to put ourselves under the microscope. Many of us have friends and family who need to be told to grow up spiritually. And guess who needs to be the one to tell them to do that? You. I don't know those people in your life. You do. But we have people, all of us probably have people in our lives that are still adolescents when it comes to spiritual things. They've been given a great privilege and they know things. Maybe they know the Lord. They have a Bible, but they just still act like adolescents. Somebody needs to step in and say, hey, Time for you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Time for you to stop acting like the world and step up and grow up in your faith and to grow, grow in your spiritual maturity. Listen to me very carefully. This is important. Listen, a motherly spirit without fatherly strength will leave people spiritually deficit. And no offense to moms, what I'm about to say, but in many respects, it's easier to be motherly than it is fatherly, spiritually speaking. I think it's just the opposite in the real world. I think it's harder to be a mother, a physical mother than a father. Fathers have it easy. No offense, Tucker. But his wife's gonna do all the hard work, not just in having the child, but in raising the child. But when it comes to spiritual matters, it's just the opposite. It's easy to be gentle and kind, to look the other way, to be motherly. It's hard to be a father. Fathers step up and say hard things. Fathers say what needs to be said. The question is, will we be that generation? So let's bring this to a close. Let's circle back to where we started. Do you want to be the type of Christian that makes an an eternal impact in this generation? Then start doing the one thing you said you would never do. Start acting like your parents in the Lord. Whoever it is that has poured into you and made you the people that you are spiritually, start acting like them. That might be your real parents, or it might be somebody that you've known in the church, some other Christian, doesn't matter who they are, just start acting like them. Become just like them. Strive to be like them and pray for God. Say, God, make me half the people that they are. Make me half the people that they are and I will be impacting you. But raise the bar, say, God, let the blessing that you've poured out on them and the people that they were, let that exceed, overflow in my life. So here's the deal, here's the challenge. Just like the Apostle Paul, Start acting like your parents in the faith. Try to keep that good balance of a motherly spirit with a fatherly strength. Amen? Try to keep that balance and ask for God for wisdom as people come into your life. Go, do they need to be, do I need to nurture them and care for them? Or do I need to exhort them and encourage them? And keep that close because remember, most people in this world don't have any friends. I mean it. And most of them don't have any Christian friends. You're the, you might be the only one. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you this day. And God, we thank you for this passage. I pray that it comes alive in our hearts even as we leave today. God, may we, may we constantly be reminded of the life that we have been called to. God, you have called us out of this world and into a life of spiritual maturity in which we give our lives away in service in this generation. And God, in a generation where everyone is angry, bitter, fighting for their rights, looking to Washington, looking to Hollywood, God, may we as Christians shine brightly because of our maturity and our faith. May we grow up out of adolescence and into a mature faith, God, where we are giving our lives away in service to others. And God, give us the wisdom when we need to be nurturing and caring and gentle and kind with the world around us and the young believers and the people that you've put into our lives, but then give us the courage, God, when the time is right to exhort, to challenge and to urge those that you put under our care to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Give us the courage, God, to be bold before our days are up. We love you, God, and this is our prayer. We pray these things in your son's name. Church said with me, amen. God bless you. thank you.
4: all our hearts and all our songs My Lord. mercy, that you have called us to love you and live for your glory forever. Amen.
1: Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now.
0: The following program is called Prayers After God's Own Heart.
5: Hello everyone, it's Terry from Prayers After God's Own Heart. Today is the final session of Prayers After God's Own Heart. Continuing from last week, we have been learning about the Lord's Prayer which Jesus taught. Jesus taught and started his prayer by saying that God the Creator is our Father in Heaven. Our relationship with God is one where He is the Creator and we are His creation. He is God and we are but human. When we pray within this amazing relationship, it becomes a prayer after God's own heart. Also, God is my own father, but at the same time he is the father of all who believe. Therefore, we shouldn't just pray for ourselves, but pray for the whole body, the church, with Christ as the head. The world we live in is becoming more and more individualistic. This system of society assures individual rights and individual desires to the fullest. Worldly education focuses on how valuable we are and makes our happiness the most important factor. Christianity has also been influenced by this world and allows the church members to focus on themselves. Therefore, it emphasizes how we are so valuable to God the Father that He sent His Son to die on our behalf. Also, it emphasizes how we are so loved that God gave His Son to us. Therefore, there is an increasing amount of church members who think that God exists for them. This is a self-centered thought. However, this kind of thought is wrong. The world teaches us to look at the world with self as the center, but the Bible teaches us to look at the world with God as the center. Psalm chapter 23, verse 3 says, The Lord refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for His name's sake. Also, Psalm chapter 106 verse 8 says, God saved Israel from Egypt for His name's sake, to make His mighty power known. The reason God saved us and allowed us to have eternal life is because He loves us. However, the greater reason is that God Himself is a God of love and He is righteous and holy. It's because of His character. God does not exist for us, but we exist because of God's compassion and love. Therefore, church members must turn their attention away from themselves and begin looking towards God. They must see that they are not the center, but God is. In Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus says, First seek his kingdom and his righteousness. It means place God first as the center. If we do so, God, who is the focus of our prayer, will give us all things as well. A prayer after God's own heart is a God-centered prayer. Therefore, in the Lord's Prayer, after calling God our Father in heaven, Jesus prayed, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is a very important point. It's because a true Christian no longer seeks after his own gain, but lives for Christ's kingdom. Here is 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The reason Jesus died and resurrected again was for us to no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose again. Now our attention must not be on us, but towards the Lord. After we do this, then we may ask for the things we need to live for the Lord. We can see and understand this in Jesus' prayer when he says, Give us today our daily bread. We pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven and ask for the bread we need to live today. We're not asking God to give us enough to pile up. We're not asking God to give us a month's worth or a week's worth. We're praying that God will give us bread that we need for each day. This is similar to Agar's prayer we learned about from Proverbs chapter 30. This prayer could only be given by those who walk daily with the Lord. After asking for the necessary bread, Jesus tells us to ask God to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This prayer combines David's prayer of repentance from Psalm chapter 51 and the prayer of Stephen, who died while forgiving those who stoned him. The reason we are able to forgive others is not based on how greatly the other person sinned against us or not, but is based on how we have been forgiven by God for our great sin. The one who realizes that he has been forgiven by the Lord of a great sin can forgive those who greatly sin against him. Therefore, Jesus told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Then Jesus taught us to pray that God would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The temptation to fall into evil comes from outside, but the reaction to the temptation comes from inside us. Therefore, it is dangerous. Jesus received temptation, but he was not shaken. It's because he had no inner desire to sin. However, we have the desire to sin. Therefore, we must pray that the Lord will lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thankfully, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 promises, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I hope we will believe this word of promise. A prayer after God's own heart takes the attention away from us and looks towards our Father in heaven and asks for His kingdom come and His will be done on earth. Also, we must pray that we will be used for this work. What kind of prayer are we praying today? Is it a prayer after God's own heart? I hope we could reflect upon each of our prayers based on what we learned up to now. By giving prayers after God's own heart, we ask for God's will to be fulfilled here on earth. This will conclude this final episode of Prayers After God's Own Heart.